Obviously, something big going on today, like the crowd's a little down. I think there are a lot of people in Tampa Bay today. Uh, either that or in um, Bell County. I don't even know what state Bell County is, but that's the big thing I think is going on. The Pro Rodeo Association today is having a rodeo in Bell County somewhere, so I'm sure that's had everybody's attention, right? Everybody be glued, glued to their TVs later today watching the rodeo. A lot of red in first service. I don't see quite as much this service. Over here, it's a little weighted red, I see. Uh, for the rodeo, right? Because with bulls, you need the red, the red, the red cape or something. I think Ryan, is that what that's about? Is the it's the rodeo, right? Um, so we're continuing in our going through the New Testament this year, um, encouraging all of us to read through it as a body. I have, still have some more New Testaments. If you haven't gotten one of these yet and you're not um, joining us, please jump in. Um, we would love to have you do this. It's great. We're about two thirds of the way through Matthew. Um, I'm enjoying it. Just my son's doing it in Salina with me, and we just we talk every Saturday on the phone. Um, I've got three triads I'm in, and it's just been a great time. Pat and I talk about it, and so if you're not in it, I just really challenge you. If you're doing it, and today's February 7th. Do you remember I told you last fall that February 7th is Profit Day for fast food chains, and it's Profit Day for gym, gyms and all of that around the country because this is the day generally when people quit doing their New Year's resolutions. And so they quit going to the gym, and so it's, it's all 100% profit from there for them because they're not having to do anything for you. And the fast food restaurants, the big uptake today. So in honor of February 7th, on the way home, go to my, buy McDonald's or Wendy's and grab something. Um, but just want to encourage you, hang in there if you're doing it like alone or as a couple. Again, really encourage you to get in a group with people because I think the accountability helps. But if you want one of these, come up and see me afterwards. I'd be glad to to get you one of those. So we're going to be in Matthew today. We're still in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 22, if you would turn there. I'm in um, the NIV with it, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to read one of the most famous stories from Jesus' life, but something that a lot of times people have a few questions about as to what's going on maybe behind the scenes or underneath a little bit. So Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 15 to 22. So if you would stand with me while I read. So reading Matthew 22, and we're going to start in verse 15, where it says, Then the Pharisees went out, and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him, and they went away. And this is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. All right. So our topic today is taxes. Not the most fun topic, right? Taxes. And I do, for those of you that are reading through the New Testament, I want to say one thing before we get into this. Um, just this week, I'm pretty sure it was this week, we were in Matthew 17, and you read the story in Matthew 17, 24 to 27, about the temple tax, and Jesus said, go get the money out of the, catch a fish, and the money's in there. 
And if you read that this week, he, he talks in there about the children of the kingdom not having to pay that tax. And I just want to say one thing about that, um, because that story can be confusing. If you've read that and then you read this, they can sound really confusing. But I just want you to know they're really not the same thing. Um, what that's talking about in that story is actually an offering. The Jews never used the word tax for that. It was an offering that was commanded in Exodus 30, 13, that every male would pay two drachmas every year to the temple. It was like giving to the church, right, the big church in Jerusalem. They'd pay two drachmas every year to the temple, and that helped pay for the Levites to live because the Levites who worked in the temple had no way to make money. Um, it's interesting. It's, been, it's come to be called the temple tax, um, in modern culture, but the word tax is never used in that text in Matthew. It just says, they came to collect the two drachmas. That's all it talks about. It's the collection of the two drachmas. So that's really even not about a tax. That was about something in the Old Covenant that Jesus essentially was saying, that thing is coming to an end. Um, so that really, what he said there has nothing to do with this. And if you didn't read that this week, then don't worry about what I just said. But if you read it and you're curious, this really is not saying the opposite thing. There, it's two different topics. So, the setting for this story, it's in the final week of Jesus' life, he's in Jerusalem. He's been going to the temple every day. Um, you see, I mean, so it's Wednesday, he's going to be arrested the next day, and he's going to be put to death two days later on Friday. Uh, you see the Pharisees in this story. I mean, we all know the Pharisees, if you've been reading Matthew, they're with him all the time, following him around. They resented him. He exposed their hypocrisy and self-righteousness all the time. They envied the crowds that he drew. They were incensed that he claimed to be the Messiah. He had just cleansed the temple and humiliated them and made them lose face and authority in front of the people just a few days before. And so their opposition to him is really intensifying. And the chapter before this, in chapter 21, it says that they really wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the people, so they wouldn't do it. Um, so in this chapter, they decide since they can't arrest him, they're going to challenge his authority. And they do it by asking several questions, but we're just going to focus on this first one. So it says in verse 15, the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. Um, he had been having a conversation in the temple. They went out of the temple to make their plans because he was very popular with the people. And they're like, we got to get out of here and make our plans. Or what are we going to do? Because we've got to somehow trap this guy in his words because they were just afraid of the people. So they devised a plan, a trap for him. They're going to try to trip him up. And we're told that um, in verse 16, they sent their disciples... The Pharisees did to him along with the Herodians. So he send, they send in some of their disciples, some of the younger guys, and they send in the Herodians. Uh, I think it's funny they're sending in the younger guys. I think part of it is, is they've been arguing with him so much, they know he'll recognize them. So maybe it's like, let's send in some, some new guys. They won't know what's going on. Uh, I think the other thing is just sending in fresh meat because they're probably really tired of getting humiliated by this point, wouldn't you think? So let's let the little guys get some of that from him. Um, but they've, they've, they've sent them with a the question they want them to ask. I need to tell you a little bit about these, these people. At that time in Israel, in Jerusalem, there would have been four different kinds of people, different groups of people among the Jews in that city. Uh, two of the groups would have been religious groups. Two would have been political. Two of the groups would have been conservatives. Two would have been on the liberal side of things. So you had the political conservatives, the political liberals. You had the religious conservatives, the religious liberals. The Sadducees were the were the religious liberals, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives, the zealots were the political conservatives. They actually wanted to overthrow Rome through military might, I mean through a, an actual insurrection. And then you had the, the political liberals, the Herodians. 
So since we're talking about the Herodians and Pharisees, let me tell you a little bit more about them. So the Herodians were a political group, very small group. They represented not very many people in Israel. We'll see in a minute why I think the Pharisees sent them in. They supported Herod, Antipas, who was the puppet king of Rome, and they supported Rome fully. Um, they were wholly accommodated to Rome. And so therefore, they weren't popular with very many people. And then you had the Pharisees. Now, they were the religious group, and they were religious conservatives. They strictly obeyed the law, the Torah of Moses. They strictly obeyed all the, the additional traditions they had built up over the years, something we read about, what, a couple of weeks ago? Um, and they were very popular with the people because they hated Rome and they hated Herod. But they were really concerned about religion. They weren't so much concerned about the politics of it all, but really hated Rome and hated um, Herod. And so two, these two guys come, and I mean groups from each of these come, and what I want you to see is that actually the Herodians and the Pharisees were enemies with each other. They were at odds with each other. They were a total opposite ends of the spectrum in everything. Uh, the Herodians much more lined up with the Sadducees than they did with the Pharisees. But they did have one thing in common, the Herodians and the Pharisees, and that is they both hated Jesus and they both actually wanted to kill him. When we get into Luke, in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, we're going to find out that Herod was wanting to kill Jesus, so therefore the Herodians wanted him dead. And we just read in Matthew 12, 14 that the Pharisees had already started talking about putting him to death. So they were agreed on this, we need to get rid of this guy. So they come together. Uh, in the next rest of verse 16, they come together and to give him a very canned speech that oozes with hypocrisy and falsehood, and they say essentially four things, so we can read in the text. Um, teacher, they said, we know that, one, you are a man of integrity, you're a man of integrity, in Greek, literally, that you are true, that you just, truth is who you are, truth oozes out of you, we know you are true. Number two, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Number three, that you aren't swayed by others. And four, because you pay no attention to who they are, that he's not a biased person at all. Um, they really did believe three of those things. They believed one, three, and four. They did not believe number two. They did not believe that he taught the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's why the Pharisees were arguing with him all the time, is they didn't agree with most anything that he said about God and what the Messiah would be like. So they're lying when they say that in number two. Uh, Jesus is going to call them a little bit on their lie. I don't know about the younger generation. When I was a kid, if, if somebody lied and it was obvious, we'd always go, liar, liar, pants on fire. Anybody here ever say, am I like the only... Ryan, did you ever say that? Like, okay. Liar. So anyways, in a minute, Jesus is going to kind of do that to them. So, but here, here's what I want you to see. So they come flattering him with all this stuff that they really don't. Uh, I mean, they do believe one, three, and four because he was a person that didn't care about who he was talking about. He didn't care about what you thought of him. He just spoke the truth as he saw it, uh, something that I wish I could be better at. I think we all wish we could be better at that. So here it is in verse 17. They said, tell us then what is your opinion? And here's the question. Here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Is it right or proper to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or is it not? This question was one of the hot political topics of that day that they're bringing to him. I want you to know, I mean, it makes sense because they were, they were subjugated by Rome and the Jews hated to pay taxes to Rome. They hated to pay the taxes. 
Can you imagine if, you know, when I was a kid, Russia was the bad guy, right? If, if we were invaded by Russia or something, and our taxes were, were going to them, and some of it stayed here for stuff here, but half of it was going back to Moscow. I mean, you would hate that kind of thing, right? I mean, anybody would. So they hated the taxes. Um, it literally supported their oppressors. It maintained the luxurious lifestyles of the upper classes in Rome. It maintained their temples and their gods, which the Jews would have hated, and it paid for the very soldiers who were occupying their land. So anybody would hate the taxes, right? By this time, the Romans had ruled over Israel for about 75 years, and since that time, they had gradually increased their taxation on the people, which is never fun. Does anybody like increase in taxes? You know, like countywide or something, they'll do, hey, we want to raise your taxes by a percent or half a percent or something for five years to do this. And, you know, you'll vote for it. But if you do, you know that once that gets passed, that's never going away, right? And then five years later, they're like, hey, we, need that, we still need that half a percent, but we want to add another sixth of a percent. And then you vote on that one. And uh, that's kind of how it is with taxes. There were four taxes that the Romans imposed on uh, people. They imposed the income tax, which is 1% of a person's income. Not bad compared to what we pay. There was the customs tax. That any time you took any good, you left your village and you walked to another village, you would have paid a 2 to 5% custom on that, whatever the value of it was. They had tax collector booths at the entrance to every community. That's where Matthew would have worked in one of, the, in one of those. And as you came to town, they would determine the value of what you have, and you'd have to pay that tax on anything you were transporting to sell, to take the farmer's market, whatever. And then there was the ground, uh, the ground tax, the 10% of all grain got taxed to Rome. That's pretty heavy. These were peasant people in an agrarian society. Most everybody was a farmer. 10% of your grain was, was a very heavy taxation. If you grew fruit like grapes, made wine, olives, pomegranates, any of that that was common in Israel, 20% on that. That was pretty, pretty heavy. And then they had this last tax called the head tax. The head tax. Um, and when we're... Um, it was a flat tax. This head tax was a flat tax levied once a year to anybody that was 12 to 65, any adult, male or female. Um, it was one, the average of about one day's wage. We're going to talk in a minute. The coin that was used was a denarius. That was one day's wage for the average laborer. Probably today the equivalent of about a $100 bill. So once a year paying $100. Not too, not too much of an amount that was owed. Um, and when they ask him, is it right to pay the imperial tax, they're talking about this head tax. This is the one they're talking about, which is interesting because it's the least of all those taxes, but it's the one that most angered them. And I want to tell you why this tax was so hated. It was hated for two reasons, because that head tax was a tribute tax. Tribute means it's money that I pay that's a symbol of my subjugation. So it was tribute tax. Um, it, the, here's the coin that they used, the denarius, and there's Tiberius right there. Um, it was required over the whole Roman Empire, but the only people who paid the head tax were non-citizens, people that were subjugated by them. Citizens didn't have to pay this, only those that were under their rule who they shouldn't be under their rule. That's how they felt. And this money went directly to Rome and specifically to the, co the coffers of the emperor. It went specifically to him. He's the one that actually minted this. It was out of his money that this got paid for. It was minted in Lyon, France, and it went to his coffers, so it paid for his palaces, his new houses. It paid for any temples he built on the empire that were worship of him. It paid for all the statues of him around the empire. And so that, they really hated that. This coin, more than any other coin, represented Roman rule to them. 
And on, you can see on the back of the image was a picture of C, an image of Caesar sitting on his throne. So it was all about, I'm ruling over you. And so this was really hated. And it was hated not only because it was tribute, it was hated for another reason. Um, because of the image that was on it, on the front, the image of Tiberius or whoever Caesar was in charge. They considered that a violation of Exodus 23, the second command, 24, 20, chapter 20, verse 4, the second command against making an idol an image of anything created. So they considered that idolatry, that coin. Um, it, it had religious things to them. And not only that, on those two coins were inscribed some words in Latin that were not just political claims, but religious claims. On the front of the claim, it's, on the front of the coin, it said, Tiberius, the son of God. You ever heard that anywhere? Have anybody else using that word on their lips? Yeah, Jesus was making that claim. And then on the back it said, God and high priest. Pretty, pretty big claims. And because of that, the Jews hated this because this represented not just the tribute, it represented idolatry. So to them to carry this coin in your pocket was like carrying a small pocket idol. A good Jew would never have done that. They would have avoided this coin like the plague. They never would have owned one. They only would have acquired it on the day they had to pay the tax. They would have done an exchange. Like when we were in Israel, we exchanged money out. They would have done an exchange, gotten it, and gone and paid it, holding it probably out like this, holding their nose, dropped it in because they hated this so much. They would never be caught with that coin. They hated that coin. They hated that tax. That coin served as a constant reminder of Israel's subjugation to Rome, subjugation to an idolatrous nation that was oppressing them. That's what it was a reminder of. So that's what they're talking about when they come to him for this. Let me say one more thing about this tax, um, this head tax with the denarius. It was first imposed on Israel in 86, about 20, let me think, 17 years, forget the math. Jesus was probably 11 or 12 years old when this tax was first imposed. And when it was imposed in 8026, a man named Judas, who was the Galilean, and they must have had iPhones back then because they have his picture. A man named Judas led a revolt in A.D. 6 because of that coin. And their battle cry was no tribute to Rome. They had another battle cry, which was choose God or choose Rome. And the first thing he did in his revolt is he went down to Jerusalem to the temple. And Herod had put up standards of Rome in the temple that had the golden eagle that represented Rome. Can you see that? And he tore all those out of the temple. So he actually cleansed the temple. Went home back to Galilee, and when he got to Galilee, he started to be proclaimed as the Messiah because he was leading this revolt against Rome. He ended up taking armed men and attacked the city of Sepphoris, which was the capital of Galilee, and it's where Herod's palace was, his main palace, attacked the city of Sepphoris. Uh, and then soon after that, the Romans, you know, rose up in their power, uh, killed many of the people, captured and crucified 2,000 Jews around the city of Sepphoris, 2,000 Jews all hanging on the cross at the same time to show their power. And what's interesting to me is Jesus was probably 11 or 12 years old when this happened, and Sepphoris was an hour walk from Nazareth where he grew up. I am sure he knew all this happened. He probably saw the people hanging on crosses. So that's what's going on. That's the cultural context to this question. And so here it is, 27 years later, this is still a huge subject to them. Now, Jesus could just say nothing. He could ignore the question. But if he does that, he looks like he's not going to speak to one of the most important issues of the country. That's not going to do him any good. Or he can give an answer, right? 
They framed the question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? They framed it in such a way that demanded a yes or no answer. So they were creating a dilemma for him. And they knew that. That's why they went and planned this. It was a no-win scenario. It didn't matter what he said, he couldn't win. He'd get in trouble no matter what. So let me show you what his two options were. His first option was to say, no, don't pay the tax. And if he did that, then he gets in trouble with Rome. Um, He would be aligning himself with the views of Judas the Galilean, who had led the revolt 20 years earlier. And the Herodians then, who were friends with Pilate, they would have have reported him to to Pilate immediately for inciting rebellion. And he would incur the wrath of Rome, just like Judas did. He'd be arrested immediately, charged with treason, and executed on a cross publicly for sedition. And that's actually what the Pharisees wanted to happen. When we get to Luke, in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, it tells us that they hoped that's what he would say. Because they wanted to get rid of him, but they wanted Pilate to do it. They didn't want that on their hands, so they were hoping that he would say no. And that's probably why they had the Herodians along. Because if he did say no, the Herodians were friends with Pilate, they could be the ones to cart him off to them. Well, the other option is, is he says yes. And if he does that, he's in trouble with the people, right? He's in trouble with the people. He'd be a traitor to the nation, aligning himself with Rome. That would anger the crowd. They, it would discredit him as Messiah, and he would lose the people's support. So, I mean, they planned this well. Either way, he's discredited. Um, it's a catch-22. They've got him between a rock and a hard place. There is no way to answer this question without getting into trouble. No matter which side he takes, he's going to offend people on the other side. And then they could arrest him. Somebody's going to arrest him. And if, uh, if it's not Caesar, then the Pharisees will finally have their chance if the people are no longer supporting him. But we're told in verse 18 that Jesus knew their evil intent. In Mark, it says he knew their hypocrisy. Luke, a really strong word. Luke says he knew their trickery. A word used of Satan in 1 Corinthians 11.3. He knew what they were up to. So he calls them out on it. You hypocrites. And if you guys are reading through the New Testament with us, maybe two weeks ago, in one of the insights, it talked about that word hypocrite comes from um, the Greek theater. And it was a used word for actors playing a part, right? So when he says you hypocrites, he's saying you're just playing a part. You play parts all the time. What's really interesting that that didn't say is in the Greek theater, one person might play several roles, and what they would do is they would have a mask for each role, and when they played one role, they'd put on that mask. When they played another role, they'd put up that mask. These are masks from the Greek theater. So it's really the idea of you put on different masks for different people, Um, and he calls them on that. He says, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You came to me flattering with this flattering false speech, and you didn't come for information. You don't want my opinion. All you want to do is trap me. So he sees through the whole thing. Um, He knows what they're trying to do. So knowing that, he exposes their hypocrisy. He doesn't just say it, but he's going to expose it. Uh, and I just love this. He's, he's going to do his first move. He does some spiritual jiu-jitsu right now. In fact, he's, you're going to see three spiritual jiu-jitsu moves. You, if you, do you guys know jiu-jitsu? I'm not a martial arts guy, right? I mean, I know it. I don't do it. But um, in most martial arts, you're aggressive and you're on the attack. But jujitsu is different. Jujitsu is, I allow a person to attack me, I deflect their attack, I use their energy against them to defeat them. So I, I defeat them by using their attack against them. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what Jesus does, the jujitsu, spiritual jujitsu master. And I, I love this. So he says, look at verse 19, he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. 
This is brilliant. Because remember, no good Jew would ever carry a denarius, especially in the temple where you worship God. You wouldn't have a pocket idol. So Jesus is like, I don't carry one of those things. Would one of you happen to have that? So one of the Pharisees or Herodians pulls out the denarius, okay? So what he's doing is uh, the whole crowd's watching this, and what are they seeing? Who's the guy who's not carrying this hated coin? Jesus. And who are the people that have this hated coin? Well, it's the very people that are bringing this question. So it's, it's, it's brilliant. I love... I love his move. Um, but jujitsu move is number, number two. His second jujitsu move is this, that he then asked them a question of their question. And again, something else I love about Jesus. I think I've read that every time Jesus is asked a question, all but one time, he answers with a question. And I really love that about him. Um, Socrates was famous for that. So his next move is, is he's going to ask them a question back. And the question's in verse 20, where he says, ask, whose image is this? So holding the coin, whose image is this and whose inscription? And in verse 21, Caesar's, they reply. And then he makes one of the most famous statements of Jesus in the whole gospel. A statement so famous that even people like I did who didn't grow up in in a home of faith, that I knew this sentence, it's so famous, where he said, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. When he says give, it's really interesting to me. He's using a different word than they used up in verse 17 when they said, is it right to pay? The, the word, the Greek word under that is the idea of giving something that's illegitimately given, that doesn't deserve to be given. That's their word. And the word he uses to give. In the old King James English, if you read it back the old 400-year-old English, it was the word render is how they translated it. And it just meant to pay what is rightfully owed. So he changes the language. So he says, pay what is rightfully owed to Caesar, give it back to him, and to God what is God's. And that's what he's saying, is he's saying, it's his. He mints that thing. It's out of his own money. It's his rightfully so. Give to him what's his. It belongs to him. And though he didn't say it directly, he's pretty clear that he's saying that under God, the state has the right to collect taxes and citizens are responsible to pay them. That's, that's what saying, he's saying underneath without saying it strongly. And he's also saying this, give the state its due whether it is worthy or not, whether it's worthy or not. We talked about this back in October, but remember, this is Rome, right? Blasphemous, pagan, idolatrous Rome. This is a coin, an tax levied by a man who calls himself God. This is a tax of a foreign occupier. And Jesus is saying this of a government that he knew in two days would kill him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Somebody said that citizenship in the kingdom of God doesn't lessen our other commitments. It actually intensifies them. It intensifies my other commitments. It makes my marriage duties stronger. It intensifies my role as a parent. It should make me more responsible at work. It should make me more a better citizen than when I'm not following him. So being a citizen of God's kingdom doesn't lessen my commitments. It intensifies them. So, that's his answer. He does speak to taxation, but what I love is he doesn't stop there. And to me, this is more important than what he just said. But he, he continues, and to, or render to God what is God's. And to me, this is amazing. And I think there's a really important thing that I think in this day and age, we need to see and we need to hear. Because he takes a political discussion and he turns it into a God discussion, okay? 
He takes a political discussion, turns it into a God discussion. Yes, pay your taxes, but I've got something more important I want to talk about. And it's this, God and his authority over your life. I said this back in August in, in the sermon where I was talking about how do we respond to national issues. Um, do you remember that Jesus was, uh, uh, what is it? He was, um, <laughs> you'd think I'd remember that. Uh, think globally, but act locally, right? Very good, Samuel. Thank you, sir. Um, and what I said back then is that Jesus consistently refused to allow himself to get drug in to political issues and disagreements. He consistently did that. And as always, he always changed the conversation from that issue to God. He did that all the time to the bigger issue. He always turned it to God and the gospel. That's what he was about, was the kingdom. Um, and he's saying essentially, when he says to God, what is God's, that the greater obligation in all of life is to God, that he alone is the only person that really should have my total and primary allegiance. I think it's brilliant what he's doing. An astonishing answer. So that's why in verse 22, it says, when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Luke says they were silent. They had nothing to say. They were stunned. No answer. They came expecting to win this round of the fight. Maybe this was the knockout blow, they thought. And they had lost again. There's a really famous painting of this event I want to show you. Because uh, I, oh, I, I forgot that first service too. There's Jesus holding the coin up. But here's a really famous painting. And look at some of the faces. Look at this dude over here. I've got the white box around him. He's like, you told me we were going to win this one, <laughs> right? And then look, like, look at this guy here. He's like, are you kidding me again? Like he's done this again? But this dude I really like, like, oh, oh my, like we have just lost face again. Like big face palm, so they're going to turn around and walk away. I just, whoever did that did a great job with that painting. Um, you know, they were trying to force him between two options. They said, Jesus, tell us it's either this or it's that, right? And he gives them what I think is so brilliant, a both and answer, that those two things are not in conflict, that really what it is, it's just a matter of priority, but they're both legitimate. They both have legitimate claims. He ended up affirming what was important to both parties, the Herodians and the Pharisees. He affirmed that government is a legitimate authority, it's legitimate. It's been instituted by God. It deserves submission, respect. It deserves obedience. We talked about that in October with Romans 13, remember? It's a legitimate authority. But he's also saying God is the supreme authority. He is the Lord overall. He's the one that's worthy of our ultimate allegiance and obedience. And that's what the Pharisees cared about. So the thing the Herodians cared about, he said that. And the things the Pharisees cared about, he said both of those things. So the Herodians, they had nothing to say. He said, pay the tax, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. The Pharisees, they had nothing to say. In the end, he pointed them ultimately to God and his authority. So they leave, they walk away, scurrying off. I can imagine with their tail between their legs. Don't you imagine that that's how they left? Publicly outwitted again, fully embarrassed. And like the Psalms and the Proverbs talk about, they dug a pit and they fell into their own pit. So I've always loved this story. I, there's so many things Jesus does that I find amazing, and I love this story. And so we read the New Testament with first century eyes, but we always ask 21st century questions. And I had two things I was going to talk about. I was going to talk briefly about government, because uh, there's a lot of people who have written that he transformed the way people viewed government. It, he planted seeds that took 1,600 years to, take, to really finally take root and blossom. I'm not going to do most of that. I will say one thing, though, related to government. 
Um, and I had a lot of cool diagrams for you guys, but I'm going to say one thing. When he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, that's a profound statement and nobody in human history had said that before. He was not only legitimizing government, but he was limiting government. And nobody had limited government before that time. He was limiting government. Um, I want to tell you, in the ancient world, God and government went together. They were one and the same. The Caesars were gods. The Pharaohs were gods. The Persian kings were gods. If you, all the Chinese students I've known over the years, the Chinese emperor was a god. The Japanese emperor was a god. The Korean emperor was a god. The religion and God always went together. They were one and the same. Um, they had absolute authority over everything. That had been the worldview all around the world for centuries. And then through the Middle Ages, and even up until very recent history, there was this belief in the divine right of kings, right? That was essentially the same thing. That, that the king was given uh, God's, he was God's sovereign representative, and he was given absolute and total control. And what the king said is what happened, because he totally represented the king. And here Jesus comes along 2,000 years ago, and he says that the king's authority does not equal God's authority, and is actually limited by God's authority. A very profound statement. John Orbrick says the second half of this statement was going to change the world. The implication that there were things that were not Caesar's. Things that were not Caesar's. The right to dictate worship did not belong to Caesar. The claim to ultimate allegiance did not belong to Caesar. So, it was a very profound political statement that ended up shaping our world. It just took a long time because humans, it takes us a long time to figure things out. But here's the most important thing I want to talk about. It's his, to me, his third jujitsu move, and the best of all of them. Um, he used a really, really important word in verse 20. When he asked the question, whose image is this when he held up the coin? It's the Greek word icon, and we get our word icon from that word. Same word, the Greek word icon. And this word was really significant. And to anybody that was in the temple that day, to all those Jews, they all studied and they knew the Torah. If they were males, they had memorized the Torah. They knew the Torah, the Torah of the Old Testament, the first five books especially, the law. They knew it. And in that day and age, because they had been invaded by Greece first and Rome, Greek was the language of everybody there. And so there was a translation of the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint. And the Greek Septuagint is what the Jews used. It's what Paul quotes all the time is the Greek Septuagint. And so Jesus uses a word that's really very significant in the Greek Septuagint. And there's a principle in understanding the Bible that when you encounter a really important word, sometimes try this. I mean, it's, some, it's hard to determine which ones. But to ask the question, where's the very first occurrence of that word in the Bible? Because the first occurrence many times tells us a lot about what's going on here. And I want to show you the first occurrence of the word icon in the, in the Greek Old Testament. It's actually found in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 about the creation of humankind. And here's what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, our icon, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own what? Image, his icon, and in the image, the icon of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. They all knew this word. It was one of the most significant words. The image of God was the most significant concepts in all of Judaism. And I want you to know, here's Jesus' third jiu-jitsu move, my favorite. You know, whoa. He says, whose image, whose icon is on this coin? And what's the answer? Caesar's. 
then give that coin to him. And whose icon is stamped on all of you? Whose image do you all bear? And the answer is what? God's. So give to God what belongs to him. And specifically, that's not just an abstract statement. What he's saying is, give yourself to him fully. It's not an abstract statement. It was a very personal thing. You see what he's doing here? Just as the coin bore the image of Caesar, so mankind bore the image of God. And our responsibility is to him. Caesar's image was on that denarius, so he could lay claim to that money through taxation if he wanted to. But God's image is on me, it is stamped on me, and that means he can lay claim to me and my life. All of it, all of my life. That's a powerful thing that Jesus is doing here. So tell me, whose image, whose superscription is stamped on all of you? Okay, let's try that again. Whose image is stamped on all of you? God's. So to who do you belong? And so what do you need to give to God? Yeah, yourself, holy. That's why... Paul echoes this idea in the New Testament where he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In Romans 14, 8, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, Christ's love compels us. Does it not compel you? Like last week to see his love for that Canaanite woman. His love compels me because we're convinced that one died for all. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We owe him everything because his image is stamped on us. You guys know I love C.S. Lewis, and he was such a kind of man. In his preface to God on the Dock, Walter Hooper wrote of Lewis, he says, Lewis struck me as the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. Christianity was never for him a separate department of life. His life was such that the natural and the supernatural seemed inseparably combined. Would that be true of me? Would that be true of us? That when we die, and if somebody, wrote a, if somebody was editing a book about us, that that's what they would write of us. So, that's for the believers. His image is on you, and we owe him everything. If you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, you're still trying to figure out, is this guy worth, is he true, and is he worth my worship, is he worth following? I want to... I want to speak to you for just a second. I want you to hear this. Tiberius, who claimed to be God, the son of God, the high priest, Tiberius came and Tiberius died. Caesar after Caesar after Caesar came and Caesar after Caesar after Caesar died. Rome came and Rome fell. And only Jesus Christ still stands as Lord, the son of God, our high priest. That's why I love this image. In the ruins of the Colosseum, which represents the ruins of a fallen Rome. There's a cross standing there in the center of it, attesting to the fact that Rome came and went, but Jesus still stands as Lord of all. Empires come and empires go. Nations come and nations fall. It'll happen to America eventually, right? I mean, that's what Daniel 7 says. Nations come and nations fall. Only his kingdom is eternal. That's why we invest in that. It doesn't mean I don't care about my country, but my kingdom is, his kingdom is my focus. They come and go. Only Jesus was one who was born to a peasant, unlike the Caesars, unlike all the kings, unlike all the emperors of history. Only him does it say he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Only he rode on a donkey, a humble, 
donkey instead of a white steed like all emperors and Caesars would ride on. Only he came to give his life and to die for you and for I. Only he entered into that tomb. And only he rose from the dead three days later. Only he rose from the dead to show that he truly was Lord and that he still, he does reign over all. So if you've not come to him, I invite you to come to him. If you ever want to talk about how to welcome him in your life, I would love to share with you my story and to share with you how you can come to accept him. So would you stand with me? Um, I was going to have the song we sang on my slides and I forgot to do it. And I think I want to do it. It's that I surrender all. And if you don't know it, that's okay. Probably a lot of us have the words memorized. Not everybody, if not, that's okay. But could we do it? Um, and the first verse, because I know it, but when you get up here in front of people and you're a horrible singer, like you get nervous and then you forget the words. So I need you to help me, but could we, could we sing that? So all to Jesus I surrender. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus. I surrender. I... Let's pray. Father, Jesus, <laughs> I love this story. Because it's so you. I just love what you're doing here. I love how, among uh, most importantly, you are pointing us back to you and to the creator and the reality that we're stamped with your image, that we are the most valuable things in the universe worthy of love and dignity and respect, and that by stamping us to your image, you're, you're pointing us to the reality that we owe you everything and that we need to give our lives. So we don't do that well. I have my good days, I have my bad days, but you know, it's my heart uh, to surrender to you, to give you my whole life. Make us the kind of people at 12 that do that, that live surrendered lives, who give back to you uh, the things we owe you, which is everything, all that I am and all that I have. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 12th, you're sent this week as surrendered people to live as surrendered people to Jesus because there is a world out there that doesn't know what he's like and needs to know him. So you're sent.